And with that prayer, I would like to welcome our guest today, Professor Ramesh Raoji. Namaste, Professor Ramesh Rao. Namaste, Namaskar. So welcome to another session of Indica Conversations. For that, today we have a webinar by Professor Ramesh Raoji. The topic for our conversation today is uh, representation of India in Western media. Quickly, I would like to talk about uh, Indica, what we do here in Indica. So we are a non-traditional university for traditional knowledge. We seek to build a global renaissance based on Indic civilizational thought. We are pursuing a multi-dimensional dimensional strategy across time, space, and cause by establishing centers of excellence, transforming intellectuals, and building the ecosystem. We are a 501c3 not-for-profit organization here in the US, and all contributions made to it are tax exempt. Please visit us on our website at www.indicacademy.org, explore and navigate our activities, platforms, and initiatives. Please also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all the social media handles. We are handle there is Indic Academy at Indic Academy. Um, now I'd like to introduce our speaker today. So Professor Rao teaches communication at Columbus State University in Columbus, Georgia. He has been teaching in the US since 1987 and has offered courses ranging from public speaking and interpersonal communication to media, law, and intercultural communication. He's the co-author of the book, Intellectual Communication, the Indian Context, and the author of a number of books on Indian politics and society. He also writes op-eds, essays, and now is a columnist for Surf News. You can access some of his old op-eds and essays on www.rameshrao.com home slash home slash page slash 53. We'll put that up in the chat so you can click on it. He lives in Fortson, Georgia with his wife Sujaya and son Sudhanwa. Did I pronounce that correctly, Professor Rao? You got it right. Okay, thank you. So welcome everybody. Uh, before we start, quickly, um, I would like all of you except for Professor Rao to turn your video and microphone off. And please do not say anything uh, during the conversation. Keep the mics turned off. Uh, if you have any questions or concerns, um, um, please put that in chat. Also use the raise hand feature of Zoom to if you have to say something. Uh, also, please uh, keep telling us once you log on where you have logged in from. So that helps us uh, ensure that, uh, you know, for next uh, coming 
webinar so we are more prepared, better prepared for hosting that. So with that saying, uh, I will turn the screen to Professor Rao. Welcome, Professor Rao. Good morning, Suprabhatam. Good day. I know people may be joining from around the world. Uh, good to have all of you this morning. And I hope uh, what I have to share with you today and, and maybe the questions that you have for me today will throw a little bit more light uh, on the way we have been covered uh, by the media. And when I say Western media, of course, uh, I focus mostly on uh, the United States and of course, Europe. Uh, but sometimes, uh, given the global context these days, uh, media are all over, situated all over, and uh, therefore sometimes it is kind of difficult to demarcate uh, the West from the rest. <clears throat> uh, so this morning, uh, I came across uh, a news item, uh, a a video, uh, uh, pictorial in the Washington Post. Uh, the title is Like a Land of Permanent Sorrow. A visiting Indian photographer uh, documents life in Kashmir. Uh, it is mostly uh, a series of dark photographs uh, about life as intimidating in Kashmir. Uh, though it says a visiting Indian photographer, uh, it is a combination of an Indian and a Western photographer. Then yesterday I saw um, a piece in the Atlantic Monthly. Uh, the title is India is no longer India. Uh, it is by Atish Tasir, who is now based in the New York Times, and I won't go into his antecedents, but this is something that I've seen over the past few years now that Atish has been uh, grinding the same stone over and over again, but that it gets to be published over and over again is also kind of interesting. So we can look at this uh, kind of day-to-day -day media coverage, maybe get frustrated, or angry or disappointed, make a few comments on WhatsApp or social media and go on. Or uh, if we are to kind of really try to understand, um, you know, what is happening, uh, we may have to kind of step back and do the kinds of work uh, that is necessary to really understand of the dynamic that is present now. Of course, India has been covered. India has been a very attractive land for a long, long time. Uh, you have Al Baruni writing wonderful things about the wonderful India that was then. And of course, you have Catherine Mayo, as Gandhiji said, uh, who wrote a drain inspector's report. So India has had coverage for a long time. <clears throat> So what is different now? And uh, can we do our study 
methodically, programmatically, so that we begin to understand what is happening. Uh, not all coverage is bad at all times. So when is that coverage good? When is it bad? But more importantly, to try and understand, you know, what really is maybe uh, the ideological or um, kind of an aspirational goal that others have for India, okay? So let me start with the screen here. Uh, everyone able to? Okay. Uh, <clears throat> Back in 1999, uh, I came across uh, this headline, which says, Shiva versus Jesus, Hindus burn homes of Christians. I was thunderstruck when I first read the headline. And I said, really interesting. Uh, is there any such example of a headline that identifies a religion, a religious group, and has this kind of provocative nature? So here, Shiva versus Jesus, Hindus burn homes of Christians. This is so now, can, I, can I interrupt you real quick? Uh, can yes. you make your uh, slide full screen, please? Oh, okay. Yeah, thank you. Sorry about that. Okay. Uh, and let me see if I can. Okay. Uh, is this better now? Okay. So um, this was uh, a report by Celia Duggar. Um, and, and I thought immediately, ah, would they indeed have a title for one of the reports uh, like Muhammad versus Jesus, Muslim slit Christians throats, or Jesus versus Yahweh, Christian slaughter Jews in Pittsburgh synagogue, Muhammad versus Parvati, Muslims rape Hindu women. I scoured the New York Times archives and, and really did not come across anything that, that was so provocative and that specifically identified a religious group targeting another religious group. Uh, so I thought more about it uh, and I said, ah, is this a one-time aberration? Um, and, and so back in uh, 2001, I did my first study of the New York Times and the Washington Post. Um, I just looked at the editorials uh, about how they had covered Indian matters between 1999 and 2001. And even then I found out uh, that the New York Times uh, was not only more critical, but uh, completely negative in its coverage through its editorials. The Washington Post then was kind of more middle ground. Uh, so I have been watching um, Western media since I have been teaching here in the US since 1987. And I therefore began writing about it. And more recently I said, okay, since uh, uh, you know, uh, I have collected so much data, let me try and you know, collate this, let me try and ana analyze this. So I looked for 
you know, what has been happening in terms of the New York Times coverage. I have also done this for, uh, in terms of the coverage of uh, National Public Radio. I plan to do that for the Washington Post, but this cannot be a, a, a one-man journey. Uh, it needs a lot of academics, a lot of scholars, a lot of activists, a lot of writers to be involved in, as I said, a more programmatic analysis of the coverage of India by Western media. So when I looked for more headlines, I came across these. Hindu cow vigilantes in Rajasthan, India, beat Muslims to death. Here again, a carefully calibrated headline that identifies religious groups, it identifies the victim, and it is provocative in nature. Next one I came across was anti-Muslim venom fuels rise, of, rise to power in India. Forced to chant Hindu slogans, Muslim man is beaten to death. Hindu-led India puts clamp on Muslim Kashmir. India plans big detention camps or migrants. Muslims are afraid. Now, again, we may say, you know, those of us who are skeptical about any kind of a campaign of defamation or targeting, saying, oh, you know, the New York Times uh, has its ideological slant. It is left of center. It criticizes others. So what? But again, it is very important to compare these headlines with uh, others uh, that they use and to see whether they have similar headlines where, for example, a Muslim group targets a Christian group or a Hindu group or a Christian group targets others. And I found none. Uh, <clears throat> Uh, and here again, um, you know, those of you who do watch um, the news and who do watch some of, uh, of, of the uh, coverage of India, uh, we found out uh, uh, last year, uh, especially because of the elections, um, there was a whole bunch of coverage from National Public Radio, and they had a series of articles, uh, op-ed um, comments, and even though NPR is a radio um, uh, channel, uh, they also had a lot of uh, reports uh, on their website. And one of their correspondents in New Delhi happened to be Furkan Khan, who tweeted, if Indians give up Hinduism, they will also be solving most of their problems, what with all the piss drinking and dung worshiping. Now, this is not a reader, this is not someone, a troll, this is National Public Radio's New Delhi correspondent. And if you go to the NPR site to this day, now you will see all of our articles still there on the site. People complained, Furkan Khan was let go, but then again, if you look at the NPR website, there is not one mention of this particular post about NPR asking this person to resign. The apology that NPR gave is nowhere on the site. And then some of my colleagues, some activists who got in touch with NPR, 
try to engage them and were told, oh, okay, we will work with you. After three months, there is nothing. So we will have to kind of consider, oh, what is happening here? And if you look again at the coverage that was done of India last year, programmatically, then there is something else going on. Very quickly, you know, I'll take about 10 minutes to kind of scroll through a few headlines so that I want to make the case here first that these are not headlines that are kind of, you know, once in a while aberrations, but there is a kind of a campaign here that highlights Hindu criminality, Hindu uh, action that is targeted, that is aimed at others. Okay, so we have this Hindu priest with a history of bigotry selected to run India's Uttar Pradesh. We all know who they are targeting. But again, take a look at the title. Hindu priest with a history of bigotry. Next one, vigilantes in India, protecting sacred cows, promoting a Hindu way of life. India is changing some cities' names and Muslims fear their heritage. Their, their heritage is being erased. Uh, what about this? You can say, oh, well, um, and uh, the New York Times criticizes, criticizes Trump. Uh, you know, uh, they have been bitterly, mockingly, you know, taking sh shots at him. They have criticized uh, Brazil's uh, president, Bolsonaro, and they have criticized uh, the president of the Philippines. Uh, they also uh, regularly have reports uh, targeting nationalist right-wing governments, parties and movements. And would not the criticism of the India uh, BJP Hindu kind of uh, dynamic right now, similar to the, the kind of criticism that they have uh, made uh, of others. At this point, I think it's very important to kind of step back and say, huh, how have the media kind of presented the world to its readers, to its viewers, to its listeners? Uh, we find out that, you know, the media do uh, set agendas. Uh, we have a, a whole theoretical framework called agenda setting. What does that mean? So the media is supposed to be the fourth estate. You know, we have the first three estates, the executive, the legislature, the judiciary, and the media is supposed to kind of keep watch over them uh, and, to, and to ensure that those first three estates do their work uh, in a proper way. And that if anything goes wrong, any criticism has to be made, it's the media who does the watching. But then uh, the fourth estate, uh, if it has its own agenda, uh, that means its plan for society, uh, then we need to acknowledge that. And in the past, in, in the US, for example, almost every town had its own newspapers. And there were newspapers that, you know, slanted left or right or were centrist. Um, but now, uh, uh, unless we understand uh, that, that the media uh, seek to influence uh, viewers and readers, and that they do, do it by what we call framing, you know, 
kind of a selection uh, of, of uh, news items. They, they also do this by what we call gatekeeping. They will allow some reporting or reports and they will block some. They will block certain news, certain views. So once again, is this not what we call traditional kind of bias in the media? <clears throat> uh, so this is, <clears throat> I, I think, uh, where we need to kind of say, uh, Western media's approach to India, uh, to the coverage of India, goes beyond traditional bias. Um, and, and I point out to Balagangadhara's work where he says uh, the kind of colonial consciousness. And, and again, I think it's a mistake that so many Indians make that, oh, India was colonized for two centuries by the British. No, India has been colonized, uh, you know, uh, over centuries. And that kind of, you know, as I said, uh, you know, coverage uh, of India uh, by others has been going on uh, for a long, long time. Um, and he, you know, Balagangadhara points out to, to um, uh, Edward Said's uh, book, uh, Covering Islam, that became famous, you know, that was first published in 1970, actually. Um, and and uh, where uh, Edward Said kind of looks at how the West has covered Islam and the Muslim world. And, and interestingly, now it seems like uh, the West is bending over backwards uh, to appease the Muslim world and has found a, a, a kind of a, a, a new villain, uh, as it were, in Hindus and Hinduism. Um, and I also kind of looked at uh, the work by Ronald Inden. Uh, and I would really suggest for those of you who are interested uh, uh, in studying about how India has been covered by, by you know, colonial um, observers, whether it is, uh, you know, Christian priests or academics uh, or, or uh, administrators, how did they present India? And, and Indian's book called Imagining India is, is in fact uh, a fascinating book. And I would uh, really uh, suggest to those who are, you know, serious about uh, about these matters to kind of start with this book. And he says that the discourse constructed by, by hegemonic agents, and these are basically what, these are colonialists. These are again, those priests, those administrators, those academics who wanted to study India. He calls them hegemonic agents. And these are, you know, people who are basically dominating the discussion about someone else. And it's not the someone else who is himself or herself talking about themselves, but it is the others observing them and their observation getting primacy instead of, you know, it is not my telling my story, making it available, but that you tell my story and that your telling of my story is more dominant than my attempt to tell my own story. Uh, so uh, he says a genuine critic of Orientalism does not revolve around the question of prejudice or bias or of a lack either of objectivity or of empathy. Emotions, attitudes, and values are an important part of Orientalist discourse but they are not coterminous with the structure of ideas that constitutes Orientalism or with the relationship of dominance embedded in the structure. So the, what he basically says is, look, if I were to kind of take a look at 
how the New York Times or NPR or the BBC is covering India. It's not a simple matter of bias or prejudice. It is not a simple matter of objectivity. You know, we, when we talk about reporting, we train. You know, I was trained as a journalist. Uh, and when I tell my students, okay, reporters have to triangulate their sources. Make sure that you just don't go to one person or one you know, group and ask for, for their uh, response or for their take on a matter. Make sure that you have at least two or three people so that you really get a sense of what is happening. So what Indian says is, look, it is not merely a lack of objectivity. It's not merely bias, but there is something else going on. And he says, what, this, what is going on is dominance. That is the discourse of the Westerner is dominant. It overwhelms the natives, the indigenous person or community's own story and their own take on their own lives. So he says uh, these hegemonic agents are not only successful uh, in, in you know, speaking for their own special interests, uh, but they speak for others. Uh, because these groups themselves become complicit in the process of such discourse production. Let me unpack that. So if you look at the New York Times, many of the New York Times op-ed pieces or the NPR reporters from India, these are Indian Americans or Indians. So what Indian interestingly and correctly points out is that the Western agent, the hegemonic agent, is successful in terms of presenting the picture of India, not because the Western other himself is writing about it, but they have their ideas about reality, about what is scientific, what is correct, has now been absorbed by the natives themselves. So what you now find is that these Indian reporters, these Indian writers, merely aping and imitating and presenting the Western view of themselves and claiming that is the only way to look at themselves. So they're complicit in the sense that they basically accept the premises of this Orientalist hegemonic discourse. And we can see, and, and here again, Indian is, is you know, very insightful when he says these texts are just as often as used by fractions of the ruled against one another. They're often take, taken as positions by the ruled among themselves around which to rally. So if you can look at this, and, and when I talk to you know, friends and family and, and colleagues uh, here, they say, oh, uh, after all, you, know, you have this kind of critical take about the BJP or Hindus or Hinduism, by Indians themselves, uh, what is different? And this is where I think when we step back and look at this and see how Western discourse has been normalized, that we think that is the only way, that, that Western approach of way of looking at life is real, uh, is what we, you know, uh, to use the term veridical, that, that they reflect reality completely and correctly. And that, I think, is, is something that we need to, uh, therefore, uh, you know, pay cl very close attention to as to how we have ourselves begin to 
begun to look at, at us using the lens that the West has prepared for us, okay? So, uh, what do I suggest? Um, so instead of simply kind of, you know, responding to single articles, we need more, you know, careful evaluation. We need to collate data. We need to, you know, do some, you know, uh, careful pro programmatic uh, studies of this. Uh, we must, you know, we must build our case systematically. And this is what I have tried to do uh, in my conference papers. I have got a, a, a journal article out now. And this is what something I have begun to write uh, for popular, um, you know, platforms. Um, so what, what did I do? I, I, you know, for example, here again, as an academic, or if you are simply in a subscriber, to the New York Times, you have to, you know, you have to uh, give them some money. You will access their archives. Once you access their archives, you can do a variety of search, you know, using search uh, uh, items, search terms. And this is what I did for for a study that I just presented uh, last month. Okay, I looked at the period spanning 2017 to 2019 in terms of the New York Times coverage of India, and I found some, you know, really interesting stuff. Okay. Suddenly, you know, uh, and, and this is something that uh, I would suggest for uh, for to those people who are really serious about this, that if you want to do this kind of study, you may want to kind of take a look at how the New York Times covered India between 2005 and 2015, uh, when the Congress Party, Manmohan Singh-led government, you know, uh, administered. Uh, was in charge of India. Uh, how is that different from how they have covered between 2015 and now? I, I did uh, an analysis of how the New York Times and the Washington Post covered the Vajpayee-led uh, NDA government between 1998 and 2004. So these are, these are ways of comparing, I think that will reveal, you know, the kinds of programs that Western media has for us and how they look at us and what they think is good for us. Okay, so here are some kind of numbers that, you know, in terms of the number of articles that popped up when I use those kinds of search terms, okay? Uh, very quickly, I'll spend about five minutes to go through, uh, you know, uh, some headlines once again, uh, and then wrap this up. Uh, so by around 11.40 my time, uh, then we can open up for some questions, okay? Um, here again, uh, the kinds of provocative um, uh, titles of uh, op-ed pieces and then a couple of articles that I wrote uh, recently, I, I just listed um, the writers of this opinion pieces. And, and a good friend of mine, uh, who is a senior writer in India, was shocked. He said, it's, it's just amazing how mediocre writers, people who have been, you know, kicked out of reporting jobs here in, the, in India, have got to write, have got the, you know, opportunity to write an opinion piece for the New York Times. And that they themselves had never been contacted by any of the New York Times Delhi-based correspondents for their views. You know, I asked, economic advisors to the government of India. I asked senior, you know, uh, editors who have been working, you know, 
who have written literally thousands of articles on India. These experts, none of them have been contacted, but a certain kind of list of people that the New York Times favors in terms of how India should be presented to its readers around the world. So uh, uh, Sanskrit spoken by few, but loved by Hindu nationalists gets a boost. Uh, uh, here again, uh, uh, Hindu group claims Christians tried forced conversions in India. And this is where it's kind of interesting that the New York Times, despite you know, its reporters and its correspondents in India knowing, for example, about the Joshua Project that has been going on for three decades now. And many say, in fact, the Joshua Project people uh, have a better uh, you know, uh, understanding about how, about Indian demographics than even the Indian census uh, you know, uh, uh, institution. These are basically you know, Christian proselytizers. And here, interestingly, that one item that the New York Times uh, presented it is, you know, there is no attempt at really finding out what is happening on the ground, but basically saying, oh, the Hindu groups claim that Christians are trying to, you know, uh, and again, they use the term forced conversions, okay? Uh, uh, here, uh, you know, anti-Muslim venom fuels rise to power in India, India's Muslims and the price of partition. Uh, and this is, <laughs> uh, this particular uh, opinion piece, um, uh, the the author is is you know who I mentioned as as this mediocre writer who had been you know uh, who had an interesting uh, kind of uh, background um, and uh, you know uh, the next one uh, in India journalists face slut shaming and rape threats Rana Ayub who now interestingly has been hired by the Washington Post. As, a, as one of its global opinions, uh, uh, global opinion editor. Um, and I point out that while this particular op-ed was published by the New York Times, uh, columnist uh, Shefali Vaidya, uh, you know, who also writes and tweets a lot, has been at the receiving end of abuses on social media. And the New York Times reporters, correspondents never reached out to her and in their, you know, reporting about India, did not bother to contact and, and kind of, again, balance their reporting about, about these matters, okay? So, uh, I have done a similar uh, kind of, uh, uh, you know, collation of uh, titles uh, of reports, uh, looked at how Christians and uh, Christian life has been covered um, uh, in India by the New York Times. Um, and and uh, so there too, and here again, I don't have all of the time to kind of analyze this, unpack this, but this is what I find, this is what I found. U.S. to question India about ban on Christian charity. And of course this, as you know, um, uh, when the Narendra Modi government began to take a look at these NGOs and what they were up to and how they were diverting their funds for purposes that were not what they claimed was their true purpose, okay? Uh, and then Hindu group claims Christians try to force conversions in India. Christians in India face a backlash. We are afraid of Christmas. Tensions dampen holiday in India. 
in India, cultural divide stifles spirit of Christmas. Here again, there is nothing, not one particular article about the life of Christians in India that is presented to its global readers, okay? And then interestingly, that one Chinese American who went to the Andaman Islands seeking to con convert the Sentinelese tribes, there were about six or seven articles, reports published by the New York Times. And all of it were fairly sympathetic to this really foolhardy, if not criminal young man who went there, broke all of India's rules, was you know, involved basically in a criminal act by breaking those rules. And if he had indeed landed on those islands, would have basically led to the decimation of that of those tribes, okay? So if you look at these titles too, there is nothing there that charges this young man with criminality or with foolishness or with endangering this, this isolated tribe, okay? Uh, everything is, is, has got a positive spin on it, okay? So what should we demand? Uh, you know, at this particular point in time, uh, we, we got to take a look and say, hey, in, in, in journalism school, we are told to be objective, balanced, uh, avoid bias, you know, um, uh, avoid provoking readers uh, and triangulating sources. If the New York Times, if National Public Radio, if the BBC, uh, if Associated Press doesn't offer uh, or doesn't use these standards that are, you know, classic uh, reporting standards and standards that even in the opinion pages. So for example, if you look at the New York Times opinion pages, they do hire also what we call uh, conservative uh, uh, opinion writers. So you will have someone like uh, David Brooks, uh, Ross Dudar, uh, who are who are on the regular, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, who are regular columnists for the New York Times. If they can have those people, why not also have people writing about India who have a different opinion than what has been presented over and over again? Okay. Uh, so, as I say here, you know. Uh, the NYT gives space to Brooks and do that and Stevens. Um, no sp space is provided to Indian commentators. And this is where I really checked with some of my sources back in India. Have you been contacted? Has anyone, you know, have you sent, you know, pieces to the New York Times? What has been the response? And so none that I asked from top government advisors, editors, commentators had ever been asked for their opinions on Indian matters. They had not been invited to write for uh, these sources. So to wrap this up, what can we do? Uh, we need to write more. We need to do more research. Uh, we need to train young people to, to do the kind of careful content analysis so that we simply don't use one example and charge these people with not mere bias, but you know, with, with you know, racism, with, with, uh, with, uh, with colonialist, imperialist kinds of attitudes. We need to make our case much more carefully. Um, you know, 
we need to build those databases. Uh, we need to be persistent and disciplined in, in, in understanding this, in recording this, in making sure that we really bring about a change. Okay, we can't, we can't do this in, in a kind of a you know, haphazard, uh, once in a while kind of an approach. Okay, so uh, Indian says the West continues to talk and write about uh, uh, others in the form of imperial knowledges, universal discourses that the world cons constitutes in cosmologies produced in those complex political you know, spheres. Um, and, and therefore, um, we need to kind of uh, take a look because the New York Times is seen as the newspaper of record. Um, uh, it is not merely some uh, elite readers, but ac academics uh, read the New York Times, politicians read the New York Times. And in fact, uh, you know, uh, presidential candidates <laughs> uh, go to the New York Times, to their headquarters in New York to be interviewed. And they're really very anxious and worried in terms of, you know, whether they will really appeal to the New York Times editors. So the, the paper has that kind of power and it has become that kind of authoritative voice. And if that authoritative voice is the one presenting these negative pictures about Hindus, Hinduism, the present BJP-led government, we need to be asking some, you know, serious questions. With that, let me see if you have any questions. Well, thank you very much, Professor Rao. It was really a very exciting presentation. Um, before I open up the question floor for questions, let me uh, uh, say that please, uh, you know, type your questions in the chat and we'll try to go um, over them one by one as much as many as possible throughout the conversation here. Uh, please do not uh, try not to unmute yourself. Uh, this will help us uh, this presentation keeping keep going forward. Uh, you mentioned uh, Dr. Rao, before I open up to the floor for everybody else that you know, we, we, we noticed that a lot of those people who are writing are not always, in fact, most of them are non-Indian. Uh, most of them are Indians. Um, and you, you kind of touched upon that. And you also said that, uh, you know, uh, but who, who are these people when, when we talk about them? Do you have any general idea about these kind of people who are writing? They're definitely Indians, but beyond that, who are these people? Here again, I think, um, you know, uh, we need to understand that, you know, in every country, uh, we have political divisions, okay? So right, left, center, um, you know, predominantly Muslim, predominantly Hindu, predominantly Christian, predominantly Sikh, whatever, okay? So societies are complex and we have different voices. So the question is, whose voices get presented? Who gets to speak? And why are certain voices given primacy? I think that is very important. And surely if we look at you know, Indian history and, and those of us who have been following this, you know, since the 1970s, 
uh, Indian uh, academic space, Indian media space has been uh, dominated by the left. Okay. Uh, for a variety of reasons, people have been put in place. You know, we, we, you know, people will say Lutyens media or will say the JNU gang or whatever, but predominantly it has been a left tilting discourse. Okay. Now, but the left tilting discourse or the liberal or progressive or whatever they may label themselves ha has kind of, you know, why has that been given the space um, by, by Western media uh, instead of, you know, offering space for everyone, okay? Uh, and here I think that's, that's where I, what I simply say is not that certain voices, you know, should not be given space, is that everyone should be given space. We need to have the space to make our case. If I can't make my case, if someone else is making it for me, then where is my, you know, uh, uh, you know, myself there? And, and, and therefore, I think it's extremely, you know, relevant in this discussion as to why certain spaces and why certain voices are offered uh, and to whom. Okay, um, so I'm going to start reading some of the questions uh, that people have typed. So one of the questions here is that where to whom and how do you reach out to these newspapers about these uh, lopsided op-eds? K. Kumar KG is asking. So basically, as a consumer of these newspaper op-eds, what can we do beyond just, you know, outraging in social media or Facebook and all that. Is there anything we can do concrete? Uh, I think uh, uh, we see today, this morning, uh, with the effort by Indic Academy, that we now have these kinds of platforms. What is much more, um, uh, what is different now between when I started observing more carefully the Western media coverage of India in the late, you know, mid to late 1990s is that we have social media, we have the internet that allows us to leverage this, you know, these new platforms, these new venues. And if we do this in a careful, organized, methodical manner, we are going to break through that kind of dense wall, you know, ideological wall that they have surrounded themselves with. Now, it also takes for young scholars, young activists to do this carefully, okay? It, it is very easy to you know, forward some WhatsApp message, okay? But it takes a lot more effort to sit down every day, three hours in front of your computer, write articles, collate data. That takes effort, like anything else. If you want to be a good musician, you got to practice six hours a day. There is no other way around that. And, and I think, and, and, and here again, uh, I, I think, you know, you know, angry readers are important, angry viewers are important because they are expressing stuff. But we also need to do this in a systematic way because only then will we have those kinds of academic, strange scholars who can, who can respond to the world, you know, in a careful, systematic way. Thank you. That that kind of kind of gives uh, 
segue to the next question we have is that, what are some of the alternatives to, for the people who want to actually do some work and uh, present their works, uh, even if they are not scholars or professors, um, are there alternative mediums available? So this is asked by Shyam Nand Kumar. Okay, okay. Uh, yes, and actually these days, it's much more easy, you know, not only to, excuse me, to do your own blogs and so on, uh, have your own websites. Uh, but for example, um, an outlet like medium.com, where you can actually publish and even you know, if your articles are good enough, you could have millions of readers and you could make quite a bit of money too. So it's a question of um, finding out those kinds of venues. And again, you need to, we need to prepare ourselves. Not everyone has the capacity, uh, you know, immediately, you know, I mean, even when I write articles these days, it goes through at least two or three iterations before I send it off or before I publish it on Medium, okay? Or before I send it to Surf News. Uh, or when I, when I do a presentation at a conference, my first two, three, you know, drafts are drafts. So writing is difficult. Speaking uh, can be a challenge for those of us who are not trained. And these things, again, we need to pay attention, acquire those kinds of skills and test it and, and do that, you know, thoughtfully and, 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 you know, with persistence. Thank you. Yeah, on that, uh, on that end, I would like to also mention here that we organized through Indic Academy several writers workshops. So actually people who are interested should uh, invest some time and some resources as well. Um, to hone their skills so they can able they are able to write more effectively. Um, next question is from Kiran. He he's asking basically is if if there are some monetary incentives for people uh, who are writing the kind of articles they are writing uh, for you know so, so to speak like follow the money kind of thing. Okay. Do you have any you know in, insight well, uh, on that? Yeah, uh, uh, these days, because everyone, <laughs> everyone that I know seems to be writing, <laughs> a lot of people are writing, uh, it is a buyer's market. So, you know, people are, you know, I, I don't get paid for most of what I write. Okay. Uh, but it is important to write. And if you become a good enough writer, if you are a skilled enough writer and commentator, you will be rewarded. But that can, you know, here again, I mentioned, you know, a platform like Medium. Yes, you can publish there. And if your article is popular, so for example, uh, that uh, Stanford trained engineer who wrote about the coronavirus, that was shared a few million times. <laughs> so surely uh, Medium would have paid him quite a bit of money because of that many views. So yes, there are rewards, but that that can you know that comes uh, later, and I think it is very important first to acquire skills to read regularly, and that's the other thing that I found. So many Indians uh, read sporadically, 
uh, don't go beyond the headlines, uh, don't care to read uh, people who are, you know, trying very hard to, to change the narrative, okay? If my articles are not read by, you know, my own friends, then that means I'm not, you know, I'm not breaking through that kind of either, either apathy or ignorance. All right. Um, Anil Kumar asks, should we not analyze that how Muslims were able to get a positive coverage? Was it oil money? Uh, that is a fascinating question. It's a very interesting observation uh, because, uh, and, and of course, my good friend, Conrad uh, uh, Els has written something about, about Islamophilism and Islamophobia. And those who profess love of Islam uh, are the ones who have bombed uh, Muslim societies and countries to smithereens, you know, whether it is Barack Obama or George Bush or Bill Clinton. Um, uh, whereas those who are termed Islamophobes, uh, you know, people who criticize, uh, you know, uh, aspects of, uh, you know, fundamentalist Islam uh, have done no harm, uh, except that they are seeking to have, uh, you know, moderation, uh, you know, in terms of our religious uh, ideology. What is interesting in terms of the West, and, and as I mentioned, Edward Said, you know, he taught at Columbia University, um, and he taught there for a long time. And, and his uh, um, uh, covering Islam uh, became hugely popular, and it took a few decades. Uh, now, yes, we see, uh, you know, again, uh, if you look at the New York Times, uh, one of their opinion uh, editors is uh, Basharat Peer, uh, who is a Kashmiri uh, Indian, um, and and uh, you know who is also part of um, you know particular groups that they call themselves progressive, uh, and and you can see basically you know the hand uh, of Basharat Peer in terms of the kinds of op-ed pieces that are published in the New York Times, uh, so, or, or as I mentioned, Rana Ayub who is a global opinions editor for the Washington Post. Now, this has become, you know, par for the course, whether in academe or media or in public spaces, and rightly so, you know, we should not be demonizing any group. Uh, we should be targeting, you know, violent crimes and violent ideologies, okay? And, you know, if, if we do that, then I think everything is fair. But this kind of bending over backwards and shutting out all criticism of all valid criticism against Islamists, and when I say Islamists, these are the fundamentalist, you know, uh, uh, Muslim preachers and, and activists who seek to bring, you know, their own version of their violent world to the rest of the world. If you can't even criticize that, then that means we have or, you know, really ignored what it means to be balanced. Thank you. I think the next question was Thira Shah. It's a same, similar, similar question, so I'll skip that. Uh, next one is uh, Ram. Ram, can you go ahead and ask your question yourself? You're the co-host here. All right, I'm going to read out, uh, Professor. What can we do to change the negative uh, discourse? You know, do we start writing mass letters to the editor 
Will that help? Is it not a few levels above the editorial pay grade here, actually? What's the conspiracy? Yeah, I, I think, you know, I have tried writing letters to the editor and, you know, been frustrated because, and again, uh, you know, I mean, in terms of letters to the editor, you know, there is a limited space. But once again, you know, and there is a rare letter, and, you know, I do have them in my archives, uh, where, you know, uh, uh, where there is a little bit of pushback allowed. Um, and of course, these days, we have this whole, you know, petitions that we can, you know, change.org or whatever, uh, we can, we can build up that kind of momentum. So people do get to hear. But I think the big challenge in India is simply because, you know, uh, again, the Indian left liberal progressive uh, cabals have basically adopted the Western hegemonic worldview about who a Hindu is, what Hinduism is, and what quote unquote, a Hindu nationalist government is all about. So when you have that powerful an influence and that deep rooted press you know, uh, uh, occupation uh, of academe and media spaces, then it is a challenge. And, and this is where I think, you know, it all depends on how many readers we get, how many viewers we get, whether it is, you know, for a magazine like Swarajya or whether it is, you know, you know, any of those kinds of writers who are, you know, providing a, a, a different kind of narrative. So we need to really, you know, put our monies where our mouths are, <laughs> uh, do that kind of due diligence and be critical, you know, uh, and again, it should not be nature. We have to be careful and, and balanced in our analysis. And if we do that, we will get, you know, we will find that space and we will make that space. Uh, before we move on to the next question, our uh, other co-host Nishant, he wants to make an announcement. He wants to say something. Nishanji, can you come in please? Oh, no, I actually just wanted to say, uh, we are going to run a few minutes over uh, because we have a lot of questions still. I think we have four more questions. Yeah. So. Uh, if everybody can hang on in, uh, we'll just take a few more minutes and wrap this up. Did you have any question, Ranishanji? No, not at this time. Okay. All right. So next question is uh, from Bharat or Bharat? And no, hold on just a second. I scrolled up. Uh, Sri Srinath, is Rajiv Malhotra's Breaking India not too far-fetched? I have from a very reliable source in the Western intelligence community saying that breaking India is just a matter of time and a goal of some powers in the shadow. What is your take on this? I mean, India has always been an attractive place for marauders. <laughs> this is not anything new, you know. Uh, uh, it is, it's a beautiful land. Uh, it's a fertile land. Uh, it is a land of great cultural, civilizational, uh, you know, uh, history. Um, and then it's, it's people are, are brilliant. And, and uh, yes, um, and, and of course, the, the, the biggest challenge, uh, the, not just uh, for India, and, and this is something that I have written in some of my commentaries. Once you have 
what I call monopolistic, monotheistic ideologies, then it is their, their logic that they prevail, okay? And when I say, and then I say monotheistic, it need not be just theism. Even when you have a monopolist ideology like Marxism or communism, which means that you cannot rest until you make the world, you know, communist. You cannot rest until you make the world Christian because again, it is not what Ramesh Rao is saying. It is what Christians themselves, when they go to church and ask to spread the word of Jesus, or when you go to a mosque and ask to spread the word of, you know, Muhammad, what is the end goal? It is to make the world, as I said, Marxist or Christian or Muslim. And it's not just those three. Those are the three big, three big groups. Any monopolist or monotheistic ideology, anyone who seeks to convert another is involved in that kind of a, you know, program. That is their worldview. I want to world, make the world, you know, uh, Baha'i. You know, for example, you know, I used to go uh, to Washington D.C. every three months um, to attend the Freedom House meeting on uh, religious freedom. Everyone around that table, very big table, seating about 40 people. I was the only one representing a non-proselytizing faith group. Yeah. Now, that is the nature of ideologies that are monopolist. So we Hindus, we need to keep saying, you know, diversity really means diversity of views. Okay. And that, you know, God may be one, the Supreme may be one, but there are many ways of approaching him, her, it, the cosmos. Okay. We have a beautiful, fantastic, and really world embracing kind of an approach to the world. If we don't, you know, keep telling the world about this, then, you know, we will have to kind of, you know, see, you know, you know, with clear eyes that a, mon a monopoly, whatever a business monopoly or a, or a religious monopoly, what they seek to do is to occupy the complete space. Thank you. Uh, just uh, another quick observation. Since you, you mentioned, you know, people, we have everything in India People have been coming there for a long time for different reasons. But one of the assets that we keep ignoring or uh, advertising that people came for is our intellectual tradition, the intellectual property that India has. And it doesn't get advertised as much as just the wealth or the silk or the spices. So I just wanted to make that point. And uh, before I go, uh, next question, go to the next question. Uh, will it be possible for you, Professor Rao, to mention the names of the books that you, uh, you listed in the presentation? Indian's book, uh, Balu's book, and uh, Edward Said's book. Names of those books, please. Um, yeah, uh, uh, I, I, would, I would, you know, I think the most accessible book and that which I would, you know, really like, you know, scholars and, and writers to, you know, take a look at is Ronald Inden's book, um, um, you know, which is uh, yeah, Imagining India. Uh, 
uh, and, and Ronald Linden is a student of uh, McKim Marriott, who taught at the University of Chicago and, and very recently, and you know, he was, he was you, know, you know, people, uh, you know, I, I think he turned 90 and then his students met and, and commemorated and so on. So Inden was influenced by uh, Marriott. And McKim Marriott was one of those anthropologists who really believed in, you know, basically changing anthropology so that the indigenous person, the other, spoke for himself or herself. Okay. Uh, that movement in anthropology has been going on, you know, since the 19, uh, believe 1980s. Uh, and, 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 and I think here again, uh, I think the challenge for India uh, is that we have begun to speak like the, <laughs> like the Western uh, imperialist others. So it, it is going to be a challenge uh, in terms of ensuring that the Indian space is cleared first. When I say cleared, not to marginalize anyone, but to make space for all, okay? So that there is a real debate, you know, Wada, uh, I believe. <laughs> uh, There's a book that I've been reading recently, uh, something that I'll be writing about also. Wada is, has been the tradition in India, debate, discussion. That's how, if, you know, people change their worldview once a philosopher was able to, to defeat in debate another person. That is the tradition of India. And that great tradition of Vada should continue. Yeah, very good point, Professor Rao. Yes, I remember um, talking to Professor uh, Arvind Sharma, and he was also mentioning that our lens that you talked about has changed so much that we have started talking in those terms. The vocabulary, our voc vocabulary has changed. For example, we use the word religion, you know? It's overwhelmingly used and used indiscriminately, uh, which is, uh, you know, a problem. But okay, next question is um, from uh, Bharat. There are many who do not go beyond headlines. Is there a write-up of a framework for analysis for the unin uninitiated to analyze these articles' headlines? Yeah, I suppose we could come up with <laughs> an executive summary <laughs> for the you know uh, for those who either don't have the bandwidth or who don't have the patience. Um, you know, um, you know, and, and this is where I think it's not just uh, me uh, who is writing. There are, you know, good people like, uh, you know, Indu Vishwanathan, Wamsi Chaluri, others who have also been uh, writing about how, you know, uh, India is covered uh, by Western media. Uh, there are others, you know, uh, uh, you know, it is very important that we continue to write. And, you know, and, and I suppose... And this is the, the irony, the, maybe this is the tragedy, that so many modern Indians have simply gotten into this WhatsApp habit where, you know, just, you know, skimming through a line or two, that does not make for a, a, an intelligent uh, society. So we need, we need to spend some time reading. Yeah, that reminds me, uh, Professor Jeffrey Long, 
he has also written a paper on uh, Hindu phobia uh, from a perspective of academic and uh, a follower. Um, that gives you a, some kind of framework to work with. So I would recommend everybody to take a look at that as well. Yeah, and, and indeed, the Professor Ramdas Lamb has written about it. Right. Uh, I have mentioned, you know, these authors in papers that I have written. Yeah. Uh, so there are there are a, a few people here and there who have you know tried to kind of you know uh, you know take on the battle and 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 kind of make some impact. Yeah, and uh, Professor Long will be our guest next week for everybody's information. Wonderful. We'll be talking to him, uh, so stay tuned. All right. Let's see. Okay, um, two questions from Trishul. Uh, there is a trend. Have you shared your output in a polished, published manner and taken this to, uh, firstly, the regulatory body overseeing the media? Going directly to New York Times will not draw their attention. And number two, have you unearthed who funds the media? I think we have covered this already, but maybe just the first first part. Uh, this is where I think uh, people need to understand how the media works in the U.S. Okay. Um, no newspaper needs a license from the government. The media are free. You only need a license to start a television station or a radio station because of the bandwidth issues. But these days, because of digital communication, even that is not an issue. So there is nothing like an authority that where we can go and complain. Okay, uh, unless you know, you know, there is uh, you know some lies that are published, and we you know we we have to go to the newspaper and seek uh, you know correction and, and those kinds of things. So there is there is nothing like you know uh, uh, you know the FCC the Federal Communications Commission, where we can go and say, look, the New York Times is publishing all these negative articles about India. You know, they say, fine, go take it up with the New York Times. <laughs> so there is no particular authority that we, we can complain to. Uh, and and in India, of course, we have the, the press council. And it's interesting where Indian newspapers, <clears throat> and that too is changing slightly, but they will not, you, you know, identify uh, identify how many people from which group got killed or you know got hurt and so on and so forth. They will say one community you know clashed with another community and so on. But the same reporters working for the New York Times can do all of those kinds of things. So the press council rules don't apply to the New York Times correspondents in New Delhi, but it applies to the Hindustan Times correspondent in you know in India. Thank you. Yeah, that's a very nuanced observation here, uh, specifically in U.S. context. Uh, okay, and Nandini Singh, a brilliant presentation. Such newspapers have been criticized and snubbed by Donald Trump. In the U.K., as well as the conservatives are also clear of the BBC being pro-labor and on appeasement agenda. There are serious funding issues that dictate the USP of anti-India. Is there a possibility of a conspiracy theory to work with China and Pakistan and Russia that is controlling this hate India narrative? 
you know, I mean, there, there have always been conspiracies. After all, you know, if you read Chanakya, <laughs> the whole world of statecraft is, you know, I mean, at one level, we can dismiss certain kinds of conspiracies. But, but politics, statecraft is full of conspiracies. But that apart, and I, you know, uh, I mean, uh, uh, surely, for example, uh, I can say Basharat Pier, who is an opinion uh, page editor for the New York Times, is also a member of the group that I, you know, I forget the name of it, which is funded by George Soros. I think it's called Open Society. Ah, now I get that. Okay. So Basharat Pier is also a fellow with the Open Society. And uh, George Soros recently uh, at, at Davos said he would, uh, you know, be, be um, giving a billion dollars to bring about changes in terms of the kinds of narratives. And, and, you know, and he said, you know, wherever he sees, I think he mentioned something about, about nationalisms and so on. Okay. I mean, one can connect the dots there. We can connect the dots in terms of, you know, for example, there's a whole bunch of work on you know, how the Ford Foundation was funding certain kinds of projects in India. Okay. And during Indira Gandhi's time, there's a whole bunch of reports and Indira Gandhi herself, you know, accusing the CIA of infiltrating, you know, Indian you know, spaces from academe to media. And that is part of, that is part of, um, I think, global affairs uh, of, of uh, uh, you know, countries uh, who see immediate threats, uh, you know, uh, those kinds of things that, that, you know, are par for the course. Uh, beyond that, you know, uh, I don't have the kinds of resources <laughs> to track, you know, you know, whose back, bank account has gotten money from whom, you know, till we you know, make those kinds of connections, it's very difficult to kind of say, ah, you know, these are the people who are directly funding these kinds of people. Very good. Uh, do you have time for a couple more questions, Professor Ra? Do you have? Sure. Or, okay. All right. So two more questions, maybe. All right. Um, uh, huh. Bala, what is the role of second or third generation Indian Americans in this narrative? What resource advice do they have? Yeah, I, I think, I think, you know, I have an 18 year old son. <laughs> he and I, you know, uh, debate quite a lot about these kinds of things. He doesn't always buy my argument uh, because his friends, his cohorts uh, also read a lot of the New York Times and what appears in certain, you know, the access that, that the big media have uh, do influence them. Uh, and, and I think it, it, you know, it's a multi-pronged effort. Can you mute your... Okay, sorry about that. Okay. Uh, so it has to be a multi-pronged effort. Um, I think our children, um, first of all, have, you know, we have to, you know, again, um, walk our talk. Uh, if we merely talk, then, you know, it, it doesn't, it won't influence them. You know, it all depends on, on, on the culture at home, what we read and, and how we present it. Uh, but we have to acknowledge this. Um, you know, here again, very important not to generalize because I see a lot of second generation, third generation, 
Indian kids who are great musicians who are, you know, getting into dance and art and, and so on and combining stuff, um, who are also beginning to kind of, you know, uh, at certain points in their life, uh, want to kind of reconnect uh, to, to their parents or to their grandparents' world and, and find out, you know, what did they miss? Uh, it is, uh, and you know, uh, I think uh, that is going to happen. But you know, I also found that the large majority uh, of the second and th third generation Indian American uh, children, especially, um, uh, call themselves, you know, I mean, they are Bernie supporters. Okay, um, they are part of the American kind of quote-unquote mainstream, and and we therefore again will have to, you know work with them and say, okay, let's, let's talk, let's debate these kinds of things, rather than saying, oh, this is wrong or this is right. Unless we have the kinds of skills to debate, uh, then we won't win our children, our grandchildren. Yep, that's very important that we ourselves are uh, well-read in our, not just the news, but also our uh, Shastras and, uh, you know, texts and other texts, you know, Itihasa and Purana as well. Um, Sriraj asks, Professor Rao, congrats on the presentation, uh, complete, a complete set of research findings. The main question that needs to be asked is, how can this discussion and thoughts be made to filter through the grassroots? Media is clear factor. Other thoughts? Yeah, um, here again, uh, we all have ideas about who we are, you know, uh, you know, in, even in terms of our own community or communities, uh, how many watch what, how many read what, how many really are interested in what, what their kind of ideological inclinations are, <clears throat> and so on. So, I, you know, when we say grassroots, you know, I, I don't know um, who are all part of the grassroots. Um, uh, I, can, I can only make my case consistently so that it cuts through the kinds of layers, uh, it becomes accessible. And that's the other thing. There, you know, one, one is about access, the other is about the message, okay? I may keep sending out the message, but if, if people don't have the access, uh, then it's a problem. Uh, and I think, again, here, platforms like this, Indic Academy, doing fantastic work. Uh, or for example, you know, I work with Seva International, you know, uh, helping them with uh, with their you know media outreach and so on. It's it's very important to kind of talk about what people are doing, okay? The good work and then yes, we will you know uh, these things cannot you know change in in a day, but as long as we are doing good work and this is also very important that many people get very frustrated, very angry at the kinds of messages, at the kind of depictions of us Hindus and of our 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 you know our you know, civilizational property, that we say, you know, something really angry and stupid and, and you know, and, and we, we basically end up digging holes for ourselves. And, and it, is, it is a huge challenge that I have every morning when I read the New York Times <laughs> to stop myself from cursing at the screen, <laughs> okay? Uh, so it, it takes that kind of both patience and perseverance there is nothing else that can that that can that can change uh, the stuff you know uh, unless unless you know um, you know the world faces some other kind 
of a, of a threat and suddenly you know our site you know uh, are, are you know changed we we look at start looking at something else it's like the coronavirus every you know but even in the time of coronavirus there are so many <laughs> negative you know articles about india still you know popping up okay one more question professor rao last one <laughs> sure okay um does the idea this is from harsha jani does the idea of international hindu consortium coming together to define strategy and provide bursary to train young hindus in hindu centric journalism appeal to you uh, we we deal with a paradox with hindu groups we are not a hindu group and 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 i think you know i mean for example the rss the sang parivar have tried to kind of bring people together under one umbrella but even they themselves have many umbrellas mini umbrellas uh, it is not possible because that is both our strength and our weakness right we are a very diverse community our our sanatana dharma is full you know i mean we say six major philosophical schools <laughs> maybe a hundred minor philosophical schools and 2000 mini you know philosophical schools that is that is the real beauty about who we are and therefore to kind of think about these kinds of you know classic monopolistic organizations that have one church and one you know you know uh, hierarchy uh, priestly hierarchy and so on that is not there so how do we leverage our diversity uh, how do we convert our quote unquote weakness into a strength and i i think finally it is it is you know it's again not merely logic because th- that's the other thing about about uh, hindu faith groups that it is not mere faith because we look for for evidence you know that's why we have our yogis and seers and others who can take us to the next step of you know and here we are kind of moving into into the area of 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 reality of of you know of the nature of reality and so on but that is our strength and so this whole idea of a, a global hindu consortium is is kind of i think it's a mistaken pursuit uh, you know people might really kind of you know it's you know think that that that, that will solve mm-hmm. that, that 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 is not something uh, really uh, i think is workable well that was very wonderful and enchanting and uh, educational Uh, professor rao and we thank you very much for coming up here and talking to us uh, before we close uh, i would would like to mention quickly about next week's uh, uh, webinar it's going to be professor jeffrey long who is going to be talking about misconceptions of hindu dharma it's uh, same time i think t- uh, 10 o'clock central and 11 eastern Uh, we'll be sending out information so please check our uh, social media handles i would also like to thank uh, ram uh, my colleagues here ram and nishant uh, for getting the logistics taken care of and uh, talking to professor rao and getting the 
scheduled and working with our India team and also like to thank our India team and Hari Kiranji and his office for providing all the logistics here, uh, support for everything that we do here. And thank you very much, everybody. Uh, we'll see you next time, next week. Have a good uh, Take care, rest of be week. safe. We yes. live in kind of strange times. <laughs> yes. So please be safe. Okay. Thank you and namaste. Namaste. Namaste.